This is Fiberside Chat, a 3GIS podcast, bringing you the latest practices in the world of fiber networks and plus architecture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fiberside Chat, podcast by 3GIS. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for listening to another episode of 3GIS's podcast. If you like what you hear and want to listen to previous or upcoming episodes, make sure you're going to our website at 3-GIS.com. Again, the number 3-GIS.com. There you'll find more episodes of Fiberside Chat, as well as more blog, article, and video content, and of course, more information about our services. You can also listen to Fiberside Chat on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just type in Fiberside Chat. Hit subscribe, and you'll get notified when we get new and previous episodes loaded on there. So on today's episode of the Fiberside Chat Podcast, we're getting a quick overview on how automation technology is being added to network planning and design. At 3GIS, we've spent years refining the organic and inorganic methods for network deployment and design, building out over 4 million homes past With those millions of homes passed and years of deployments have come the trial and error of refining and eventually combining knowledge in GIS, telecommunications, networkings, engineering, and finally, automation to better build out your network designs. So how does automating design processes fit into other more organic methodologies, the ones that are already seen as beneficial, And what are the benefits of bringing automation into the process? We're pulling from a breadth of experience to better understand those questions. I'd like to introduce our guest, Michael Measles, Vice President of Product Management for 3GIS. Michael is a veteran of the industry, providing geospatial technology solutions for customers for more than 20 years. Michael, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Absolutely. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on this, breaking it down and a better understanding where automation fits into this existing process. So, Michael, with your 20 years of experience, you're deeply engaged in the market. You talk to many key telecom players, not just in the U.S., but globally. So in those talks, what are you hearing about goals of automation in the network planning and design phases? What are the key constituents expressing they want out of it? And uh, how are they already trying to integrate said technologies? Sure. Yeah, I think the, the the key benefits around automation is our driver anyway. That that most of the service providers that we're talking to is is a function of speed uh, and deploying deploying these networks faster and faster, um, both to align to the new technologies uh, as they're as they're coming out from wireless to uh, obviously your typical your t- typical GPON networks and moving maybe from a centralized split to distributed split network. Uh, incorporating wavelengths in the network as well, uh, also uh, incorporating existing infrastructure to help lower the cost. Uh, so automation, really the idea around it, and many service providers are thinking that there are tools out there uh, that, that can and, and should be capable of understanding new technologies and how they're being deployed against the, against the existing infrastructure and really reducing um, the time to market and commoditizing uh, the pieces of the process that, that, that makes sense to commoditize, obviously. Nothing replaces the human in the loop, 
but service providers certainly are looking for tools and techniques to to reduce the time to construction, mm. uh, and that's 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 the been the primary driver that we've seen anyway. How long have you seen that be a primary driver? Uh, you know, how, how long has this been on people's minds, and uh, do you see it growing in real time? Um, yes, I, I have personally uh, from my first exposure to it uh, to to automation and, and this idea of, of optimizing network designs through automation was. I guess five years ago now, uh, we were involved in a fairly large project uh, that was deploying fiber of the home across the United States. And uh, they were lo- looking to, uh, our customer was specifically looking to reduce uh, the manpower required to design those networks. What we've seen over the past uh, several, uh, probably two or three years now is, is an increased focus on automating designs as it makes sense you know, globally. Uh, and that's really a function of the global market beginning to understand that they need to deploy these networks faster. Uh, so, and we see continued continued efforts uh, to really place this idea of automation inside the existing customer workflows uh, that, that we haven't seen, you know, even five years ago, it was somewhat of a novel idea. And I, I think today it's becoming an expectation. So just so we can compare and contrast a little better here, uh, could you break down what organic deployment of a network looks like without automation? What are some of the tried and true processes that already work and that are uh, well-liked and and well-received and effective for the industry? And then where are there some gaps in that process? And then we'll we'll go from there. Sure. I think the, the, the key elements in terms of these organic these organic network builds that are that are primarily facilitated uh, through human interaction uh, is that our customers really expect to take advantage of the knowledge base that they have internally. And what that means in terms of the organic sense is is really a, a person evaluating the environmental conditions uh, around the area in which you're you're designing your network and 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 going to build that network. And understanding how those environmental conditions can in, can impact your speed of deployment, and some of those items obviously are are, are permitting. Um, some areas are easier to permit than others. It, most of the tools that are out there today, in terms of automation, don't necessarily have kind of that more environmental uh, or holistic view of the area in which they're designing, and understand the nuances of those environmental impacts on the speed of deployment. So I think in terms of organic organic design, let's call it, our customers and, and what we've seen even internally as, as we've designed more and more networks is leveraging kind of that human factor and understanding kind of that holistic view of the environmental conditions that could impact your speed of deployment through permitting or, or even through constructability is really quite key. And using that information to influence uh, the automation engines that are out there really has has um, has yielded a far better result in terms of the design output. So now, based on that uh, process, where does automation fill those gaps and work alongside organic design, and in some cases, uh, you know, replace some of those processes? Yeah, absolutely. So, in, in terms of the organic nature of of influencing these automated designs, oftentimes that happens at the beginning 
most most of the design engines that we've worked with uh, historically have uh, they require a certain level of input data, and that input data can be very discrete. Um, you know, i.e. Uh, edge of pavement and sidewalks or even specific running lines that have been determined or predetermined by, by a designer. You can also uh, deliver just a street center line to, to many of these engines and the engines then try to uh, determine, you know, what side of the road uh, it places a network on. So without that discrete data in terms of input, uh, from from a designer, uh, the engine can make decisions that that a designer might not necessarily make. Uh, beyond that, once once the engine has at least determined an initial route, one of the the key elements that that we tend to focus on, you know, from a 3GIS perspective, is now allowing the designer to review the decisions that that engine has made uh, in terms of constructability and permittability, uh, and, and really modify that what we'll call a proposed route that's come back, modify that proposed route and, and maybe create a more discrete route uh, based on their understanding of the environmental conditions. Um, and when we couple the designer kind of in those two phases uh, of automation, uh, then again, that output is, is so much better uh, at the end. And you know, we don't necessarily, or you could certainly, uh, influence a design uh, based on the output. So if all your network elements have been laid down, like fiber cable and conduit and equipment and splice closures, the designer can certainly go modify those things. Um, and, and that oftentimes does happen as, as items are missed in, in the automation. But it's much easier to modify the initial route in, in terms of constructability and permittability and just and let the engine optimize on top of that route. So at least you're not moving features across the road or multiple features across the road uh, where you, you could have just eliminated one roadside uh, from the solve altogether, kind of as this interim step. So uh, I think of an, an interesting distinction to make between automation about automation design is this idea of autonomous. You know, I, I, kind of get on my bandwagon there a little bit. A lot of the design engines can, can certainly create a design autonomously with very little human interaction. But in reality, without this human interaction influencing your route and your network elements that you're placing, autonomous design almost never yields an output that's constructible. It certainly can yield a planning output that you can make business decisions from initially, but it almost never generates or delivers a design output uh, that you can then go uh, both permit and build. So bringing the organic, these organic elements at the right phases really, really provides our customers an opportunity uh, to deliver better output. Thanks for uh, transitioning over to basically what the benefits are, because that's really the next point I wanted to highlight is what are the responses from uh, your clients, your customer base, and uh, other network designers in the industry uh, toward automation for more inorganic network design? What are some of the advantages of embracing automation in these phases of network deployment? Uh, and how have you seen engineering firms achieve some of their goals through automation in network deployment? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think you almost have to go all the way back and, and look at, you know, from an engineering perspective, we obviously uh, have, have multiple engineering customers that, that use our system. And kind of if you go all the way back and, and really 
encourage them to move away from maybe more of a CAD-like design engine, uh, design platform to moving towards automation. That's really the first step in terms of selling those benefits. And what we found as we've progressed through what we'll call the value chain is at, at the CAD, you know, to design an area, and uh, this is a, just a, to be some general terms here, but to design an area might have, take, might have taken two and a half days with a CAD-like workflow. You know, then, then bringing kind of this idea of GIS into the mix and, and a, a web-based system to now design that network, we were able to kind of shift from two and a half days to a day. And then once we brought automation into the mix, you know, we, we could then design that same area in a matter of, of minutes, uh, but more importantly, uh, provide the ability to redesign that area uh, sh- should, should we not appreciate the output. Uh, so, you know, what, what historically was kind of this monolithic design in, you know, multiple days can now be done in minutes with the ability to reiterate that design and it, it, within, within that same day to, to really get you the, the best output uh, specifically. So the value is a reduction in manpower, certainly. Uh, but more importantly, maybe leveraging, you know, as I mentioned earlier, leveraging that that manpower at the right position to take advantage of their their you know knowledge, skills, and abilities, uh, as opposed to just drawing features. Uh, you use them to to really enhance and or iterate through those designs to get you the best design that you can at the end, which provides you the ability to permit and construct. Uh, so the tangible benefits certainly are maybe a reduction in manpower, depending on kind of what your workflows look like today. Also leveraging your, your expertise, internal expertise to, to do the jobs that they really wanna do versus maybe the jobs that they don't necessarily want to do or seem redundant. Uh, and then more importantly, throughput, just being able to deliver more, but being able to deliver uh, quality as well. Uh, so I, I, there's obviously, you know, multiple kind of benefits to automation, but I, I would focus on those first. And then obviously, I, I think there's certainly a cost consideration there too. And, you know, obviously, as we reduce manpower, uh, then there's there's this kind of correlation in terms of also kind of reducing the cost of that design as well. So when you say reduce manpower, what does that actually look like in practice? Does that mean that we're actually going to see a trimming of uh, needed engineers in the workforce? Does that mean um, reprioritizing the work that they are doing away from network design? I mean, what are some of the tangible effects on the, uh, the labor workforce with that kind of adoption? Yeah, I think it's the latter, uh, reprioritizing uh, the work that they're doing. Maybe not necessarily a reduction in, in people, let's say. I think uh, as, as engineering companies are pursuing these larger at-scale design projects and, and as, as service providers are doing the same, um, there is kind of a historical reaction to these at-scale projects, which is really I have to, I have to staff up uh, to meet the needs and the demands of the project. You know, with automation uh, coupled kind of with that human in the loop that I mentioned earlier, you don't necessarily have to think in terms of scaling people up to support the project. It's really just reprioritizing you have and using them in a different way while still taking advantage of their kind of their knowledge, skills, and abilities, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't think it's necessarily 
reduction uh, in terms of force. Um, I think what it allows for as you pursue these at scale projects is to meet the needs of the projects without having to significantly uh, staff up your organization. So as you describe uh, network automation, uh, the benefits sound fantastic. Now, I'm sure that there is still a certain level of desire from companies like 3GIS for there to be even wider adoption, right? Or else we wouldn't really be having this educational conversation. So what would you say has caused any delays in adoption or widespread use of inorganic network design? And how would you recommend that engineering firms overcome any of those hurdles that might be internal ones or even uh, external educational ones uh, for potentially, you know, uh, your clients not even hearing or knowing about the benefits of said automation? Yeah, so maybe get the obvious ones out of the way sure. first. And, and I think, you know, changing culture is probably the obvious one. Uh, you know, engineering companies are rooted in a, in a in a pretty steep history and tradition in terms of how they've approached projects in the past, and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, uh, and there's a lot of value to to kind of learning from that experience. So, I, I think the the biggest challenges with adoption have been have been that, uh, and that and then that's essentially changing who you are culturally as a company. Now that's that's difficult. Uh, and take some progressive thinking inside an organization as to how to approach that change in, in your culture uh, in a way uh, that allows for broader user adoption. So that's probably the kind of the most obvious one. Um, maybe kind of to, to flip it a little bit and, and those things are not as obvious is that, you know, there's not there's not one service provider that is that is constructing a network that uh, that's exactly the same in terms of the elements of the topology. You know, the tiers of the network, the equipment, uh, the, ca the cable types that are being used, as an example, uh, the methodology for, for, for splitting the signal, you know, whether it be distributed or centralized. Uh, there's a, there are a multitude of options in terms of topologies uh, that can be applied. And, and, I, and I think one of the challenges from an automation point of view is being able to appropriately model the different permutations of those network topologies. So again, most of these projects at scale anyway are, require throughput very quickly. Uh, so planning at the beginning and understanding the network topology in terms of what the customer is intending to deploy is the most critical element to ensuring success of automation. If you don't do that planning activity or exercise and you don't have uh, a consensus among the stakeholders that the output is in line with the expectations, then oftentimes tradition takes over and there's a tendency to revert back to the way it's always been. Uh, so I, I would say with, without, without the proper planning uh, to understand you know, what, it, what it is to be successful uh, and then showing that success uh, th that can be one of the the biggest influencers uh, in terms of whether or not automation is going to take hold in an organization or, or whether it essentially becomes you know uh, you know a technology that that isn't trusted now once it comes time to 
uh, integrate automation into network design and then to actually deploy network design with automation, what do you imagine are going to be some of the uh, operational changes that are going to have to happen to better deploy automation with success? I think the beginning is obviously there's a systems element uh, in, in acquiring the appropriate systems that can automate these network designs. Um, the second one is, is essentially the, the storage of that information that's produced in terms of the design and how to appropriately put that into the hands uh, of those that are delivering output, uh, whether it be output to, to permit agencies or, or construction crews, as an example. What I've always said, at least over the last five or six years that I've been a part of kind of automation and design is you we're never we're almost never we're almost never measured uh, by how quickly we were able to produce a design uh, we're almost always measured by the output that it produces uh, so you know we're a gis company so we tend to think of the map and you know, there's all that information that sits in our web application and easily accessible, ubiquitous, ubiquitously accessed, all the all the right buzzwords, uh, really. But at the at the end of the day, automation that doesn't deliver a drawing or an appropriate bill of materials or a splice sheet, uh, so a contractor can go into the field and construct that network, I think is is really the key to any any successful deployment and just as much as you spend time planning for the topology of the network you have to spend almost the same amount of time understanding the output that's required uh, for those people that are going to be building that network is almost just as essential what i know that 3gis has discovered uh during you know, obviously years and years of deploying organic and inorganic network designs is that to truly leverage automation, there has to be an understanding of how it intersects with uh, the network elements as well as the built environment. Can you give us a little more context on that dynamic and that intersection so we can better understand why connecting with those two key variables leads to more successful automated network design? Sure, and, and I've alluded to a few of those points earlier, but ultimately the, the built environment is what dictates, it really dictates what can be constructed. And it, it can have a significant impact on the decisions around the network elements that you intend to place. Uh, there's some simple examples, you know, an aerial versus an underground construct as to whether it's determined that we're gonna follow the aerial path of the power plant as an example, and understanding where that power plant is, is, is certainly one, one key driver. But understanding and providing a bit more depth in terms, of that, in terms of that plant infrastructure, can I attach to the poles on, on this aerial plant as an example? And what does that attachment process look like? What's the timeline associated with it? You know, an aerial aerial build is is you know historically uh, much cheaper than an underground build. But what you have to couple that with is the amount of time uh, that it may take to be able to attach that pole, uh, especially if you have 
multiple tenants on the pole and and really what can can the pole sustain the additional load as an example as well so there's a lot of other engineering that has to be applied within the context of that built environment you know versus maybe a, a greenfield underground build but still at that point if we decide to go greenfield underground in that area uh, determining within the context of the built environment where where those ducts can be placed more easily or where we can avoid certain items uh, in, in terms of that underground infrastructure uh, to, to increase permittability. Root balls comes to mind. It's an example I use quite a bit. Uh, there's jurisdictions that require you to be a certain number of feet away or meters away from a root ball of a tree. Uh, so understanding what those limitations of the built environment are, are really critical uh, variables that then need to be somehow modeled inside of the automation as input. And uh, if, 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 we, if you don't understand those key characteristics of the built environment and you're not modeling those variables as input, then the output inevitably from any automation technique will be viewed as, as inaccurate. And again, lead to this idea of, of distrust of the automation because it didn't take that into account. And more than likely, it didn't take it into account because it didn't know about it. Uh, so people are really the key to understanding, you know, what that built environment looks like and then how to appropriately model that as variables inside of any of the automation engines. So to go ahead and wrap up our conversation then, Michael, how can engineering firms start to unlock some of this potential that automation offers? And what are the best practices they can follow throughout that process to even uh, both begin the process, but then also follow through and make sure that it's implemented correctly during the entire design process? Yeah, I think the beginning is it's it is a it's, these projects are are to a certain extent somewhat consultative in nature, and and requires you know education internally, obviously as the engineering company. Uh, it also requires education of your customer uh, that may or may not be familiar or comfortable with automation uh, as a design activity. Uh, you don't necessarily always have to communicate that that's that's how how you're accomplishing the task. But, but having that conversation with your customer is really critical. Uh, and, and that's really more about beginning to define, you know, the, the, what the success criteria around these projects are. Uh, I think oftentimes we tend to get locked in t- into a certain output for a certain customer, and we allow that output to dictate the methodology by which we approach the design. And usually that output is to a certain extent somewhat manual. So it requires, I think ultimately it requires kind of rethinking, you know, what output can be produced uh, that allows a contractor to to build a network. Uh, And then in terms of that, what can be automated in terms of that output? And it may be may be very, very simple. Uh, An example, you know, I'll give is we worked in uh, a certain jurisdiction that that uh, we suffered light table review for all of our permit drawings we were creating. It required dimensioning uh, from from the running line to certain features like edge of pavement or fire hydrants or uh, handicap uh, accessible ramps, for instance. And and what we found as we began this process uh, for this particular jurisdiction is 
we had to manually draw these dimension lines. Uh, and, and what we found uh, as, as we went forward is that that became an increasing challenge for us. Uh, and the challenge was not necessarily drawing the dimension line, it was creating consistency in the output over time. Because again, we suffered light table reviews, so they would pull up version one against for revision two, and they would see that the dimensions lines change and the permitting authority then had to evaluate. Uh, they lost confidence in what we were generating uh, because the dimension lines has, had changed. So we went through a process to where we automated creating dimension lines. Um, and what that did is yielded a very consistent output and increased the amount of permits that we could get approved uh, because we were providing to the permitting authority a very consistent output that wasn't necessarily subject uh, to kind of a human in interpretations of the, of the rules as to where to place these dimension lines. So I would say you don't necessarily have to start with automating everything uh, in terms of a design or adopting a design engine, although you know, certainly you could do that. Uh, you may want to start small and determine, you know, what are the smaller steps that I could take towards automation, which improves the quality of life maybe for my designers, uh, but more importantly yields a more consistent output uh, in terms of construction and, and, and permitting. All right, Michael, I think that just about wraps up our conversation for today, breaking down a, a brief overview here of how Automated network design can benefit folks in really any industry looking to uh, build out a new, robust, and flexible digital infrastructure, and physical one as well. Uh, Michael, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with as we depart here? Anywhere that they can uh, gather more information and resources as they begin this automated network design journey, or just any final words of wisdom? Yeah, sure. Uh, certainly, certainly reach, reaching out. And as I, I've said to many, whether uh, we sell you anything or not doesn't necessarily matter to me. You know, I'm certainly here to provide any context or help as you are embarking on, you know, the, these types of projects. And I think outside of that, it's it's don't let fear drive the decision. Right. Because with automation, there's a, there's a fear of the unknown and there's a fear of change. And that comes pretty self-explanatory, but uh, but I but I do I do encourage those that that maybe can put that fear to the side and, and really try to look at it as, as an opportunity to create some core change inside of your organization that allow you to meet the goals that, that oftentimes are being dictated uh, to you. Uh, so uh, certainly. Uh, automation we've seen has been, you know, critical to, to a lot of our projects' success, and and we believe strongly uh, that you know those organizations that adopt, you know, this idea of automation and and you know maybe taking it into these kind of smaller pieces, if you will, will really provides you an opportunity to to grow. Um, Without automation, I don't. I don't believe you can you can grow in today's environment. And, and certainly, uh, you know, from meeting customer expectations and, and making it a, you know, make, making it a delightful experience you know, for your customer, I, I think automation can help. Certainly, help contribute uh, to making it more delightful uh, if you can put your fears aside and 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 really embrace it as an opportunity.
All right, folks, again, we've been chatting with Michael Measles, Vice President of Product Management for 3GIS. Michael Measles, thank you so much for giving us this breakdown and looking forward to chatting again in the future. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Fiberside Chat. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, I point you again to our website, 3-GIS.com. Again, the number 3-GIS.com. There you can find more information on our services and solutions, contact information, and, of course, more pieces of content like episodes of our podcast, some articles, videos, and blogs as well. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.